I can honestly say it's great to see you all and you are to me a beautiful sight. Now, maybe some of us, like myself, get up in the morning and if we're brave enough to look in the mirror, we're not maybe too convinced that I'm a beautiful sight. But remember that the best judge of who looks good, my, my wife, sometimes I'll turn over in the morning and I'll say something like, you're beautiful. And she says, you're wearing your rose colored glasses. But when God looks at us, he sees us wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And our beauty is not in how our face looks when we first get up in the morning, but how we look to him because we are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. So to, to the Lord God who created you, you're beautiful. I don't care how you think you look in the mirror this morning. And you may, might be able to say, thank you, God, that you, you don't see me the way I see myself right now. So be encouraged. But to me, you're a beautiful sight. And I'm glad to be here with you at the door, as Margie and I often are. She's in the nursery this morning. This is her week. You know, Jesus never had these problems when he did the Sermon on the Mount. But then he didn't have Stephen Smiley there either. (laughs) Are we good? (laughs) We lost it. Oh, there we get. There we are. Are we good now? Okay. (laughs) The joys of technology. Thank you, brother. He is the sole pastor on duty today because of this said in prayer. Uh, well, Chris, uh, Chris is on vacation and Marcus is with him and their families, of course. And then Michael is up and finishing up ministry. It's an honor for me to be a dad who realizes that his son, who had to sit under a lot of Sundays listening to his dad preach and teach, is now having his own ministry someplace else. And he and I have agreed to pray for each other and have each other's backs in that way. It takes a lot of that to kill a, to kill a father. So I'm, I'm a blessed man this morning. We, uh, we also want to uh, recognize something about the fullness of time. Is that up there? No, it's not up there this morning. That's okay if it is or it isn't. Uh, when I mentioned that we have some people on vacation, I assume it's no secret that the Pastor Chris and his family and, and the Handys and the Nabs are off enjoying the sunshine of southern Florida in a place called the Magic Kingdom. And before they left, I said, how do we pray for people who are going to Disney World? <laughs> i got a variety of answers. Uh, uh, Kim, I don't think she would mind. She said, pray for sunshine and short lines. Well, we know they got the sunshine. I don't know about the short lines. Uh, I asked Ben, I said the same question. He said, he said that... Everybody stays well. Nobody gets sick or injured. And then I said to to Chris, trying to be a little bit more pastoral, I said, I have a theological question. How do you pray? And he got serious. He said, that will be a light that shines in the magic kingdom. Well, you know, we had all these good answers. But what I want to say in bringing that up is prior to the time that they actually flew off to the magic kingdom, there was a time when they were awaiting this big event. Now, maybe it was more of a time of anticipation for the kids than it was for mom and dad. But I found out many years ago before Disney World came into being, because I was, I'm old enough to, to, to say that I went to Disneyland when it first opened up. That was the year after the biblical flood, you know, in the 50s. Uh, but we found out it didn't take long to, to discover that there were more uh, adults that went to Disneyland than kids, because we're all kids at heart. So maybe they were anticipating, to some degree, this fullness of time that was to finally be realized, that they would get to board the plane, fly across the country, and uh, enjoy the sunshine and the magic of Disney World. There was also, on a far more important scale, an anticipation of the fullness of time for an event that was yet to be unfolded to the people of Israel. In fact... From the closing of the Old Testament to the time when it was fulfilled, there was a period of 400 years. Have any of us here waited for 400 years for something to be fulfilled? We know Jesus is coming back, and I think we can very safely say it's not going to be anywhere near that long until it happens. But the the, the thing I want to draw your attention to today is the fullness of time for something that occurred 2,000 years ago. We celebrated it. At Christmas, And in a sense, we can look forward to the other aspect of the passage we're about to unpack in terms of the fact that it was a display of God's love. And we celebrate love at Valentine's Day. 
So in a sense, it's uh, appropriate on the calendar to put Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, in this particular day at the beginning of February. And I invite you on your tablets or your phones or your Bible to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You may have a different translation. I'm old enough that I'll be more comfortable with King James or New King James. So I'll quote it almost exactly because I probably remember it more in terms of traditional uh, KJV than NKJV. But in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, God did something. He sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, Why? That we might be redeemed from the law and that we might receive the adoption of sons and daughters. Actually, in the literal sense, I can appreciate that because I am am adopted. And some of you here might be adopted. And uh, I feel blessed because uh, I was chosen to be adopted just like you and I have been chosen by God to be adopted as his dear sons and daughters. You're special to him. He loves you dearly. Please remember, and you hear that often from Pastor Chris, God loves you. He loves you just as you are. He loves me just as I am. But thankfully, he loves us too much to leave us just as we are. We're a work in progress, aren't we? I don't know about you, but God's got a lot of work left to do on me, even though I'm at the ripe old age of a little bit older than Krista. And God's not done yet. And uh, God's not going to throw up his hands in despair and say, I can't do it. He's going to take care of it. But in this particular place, case, uh, we want to learn some encouraging things about what happened in this reality that we celebrated back at Christmas. And we can again celebrate in a sense that it's the highest form of love, far beyond what we normally traditionally celebrate in uh, Valentine's Day. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in this reality is God's promises were sure. He made promises hundreds of years in the past in the Old Testament about this very event that was going to take place in the birth of Christ. The classic one is Isaiah 7.14. For unto us, excuse me, behold, a virgin shall conceive. A virgin? Seriously? You know, in your biology class, that just doesn't work. That a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And we will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Wow. We're so used to hearing that at Christmas. But when you go back and think about it and kind of step back and try to imagine this is the first time you've heard this, that's a pretty staggering promise. First of all, it's a miraculous promise. And, And the fact that it was going to be God with us on top of that. I mean, how do you do this in human form? This is double staggering. But it was a wonderful miracle that he was promising us 600 years before it came to pass. And tied in with that is Isaiah 9, 6. Um, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, 714. And then, and then we've got uh, uh, 9, 6. Uh, that uh, my brain's not working right here. <laughs> For unto us a child is born. You've got that. That's, And the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a staggering accolade of titles for this son that was going to be born to them. God kept his promise. And in the fullness of time, it happened. The incarnation is what we call it in theological terms. C.S. Lewis put it really well. He said, the Son of God became man to enable man to become the sons of God. Isn't that beautiful? God the Son became man to enable man to become the sons of God. Born of a woman, virgin birth, that had to happen because we we may not understand how to explain it fully, but what makes sense to me is the explanation that she had to be virgin-born because, guys, I'm sorry, it's understood that the sin nature is transmitted through us. Now, our wives aren't perfect either, but when a new human being comes into existence, the human nature, the sinful nature is transferred through us, guys. So that's why it goes on 
to be transferred. And you don't have to take very long to realize that your kids, who you love dearly, are born with us in nature. <laughs> they, they, they manifested early just like you and I did. But to be virgin-born, that doesn't pass on. So, brought into the world by a, a fallen human being, yes, Mary wasn't perfect, <clears throat> but the sin nature doesn't get passed on through Mary. He was born a sinless man. And he also had to be uh, God the Son to be able to be uh, not only perfect enough to be our Savior, but to be big enough to die for the sins of the world. A person can die in somebody else's place, like in the... How many of you remember reading The Tale of Two Cities in high school or something? Maybe they still do. I don't know. Not very many. That's a classic. Thank you. Got a few there. And I won't go into the details of that, but one person did die in the place of another. And humanly speaking, we can understand how that could happen. But how could one person die for everybody on the, on the planet in terms of the sufficiency of his sacrifice? doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. There are some people who think, well, it's all going to be fine in the end. Everybody's going to be a winner. It's only effective for those who believe. But his death was big enough to be sufficient. It says Christ died for the sins of the whole world. That's what the Bible says. Sufficient, but not effective for the whole world. Only for those who believe. Enough to be said about the fact that God clearly kept his promise. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son to redeem us who were under the law. It was under the curse of the law is what that means. Uh, the law in itself was, was a demonstration of God's moral code. But we're under the curse of it because nobody keeps it. <laughs> and the Bible tells us very clearly that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming that curse for us on the cross. He, he bore our sins. That was the wonderful depth of his sacrifice. He didn't just suffer physically for us, which was incredibly bad enough. And if you've seen the passion of Christ, you get the picture pretty vividly. But but in a cosmic sense, he suffered in a way that you or I or it, no human being can possibly understand. And I believe that would clearly indicated in the way he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in his cosmic existence, he was separated from fellowship with God. He felt that the, the level of agony that is impossible for any human being to understand. But hopefully, we more fully appreciate what he did for us. God kept his promise by doing that for us. He also reminds us in that that his plan was wonderful because of what he did. We're talking about it right now. And Luke 19.10, when Jesus came to maturity and, and got into the years of his ministry... He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost, which means everybody. And that's why John 3.16 is a verse that should be memorized by every one of us. That's how much God loved us. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's his plan for anyone who will believe to, to have that transference from death to life. And in John 1, 12, it says, if many has received him, that's not going to be up there. Don't worry about it, Steve. <laughs> Stephen. To those he gave the right to become, the ch to be called the children of God. That's God's wonderful plan through what we're talking about in this passage. To put it in terms of the celebration at Christmas, Jesus did not come to be left in the cradle of Christmas. He was born to go to the cross of Calvary for you and for me. I don't know your story. You don't know mine. You're going to hear a little bit more about it later. But if you're a person who's here today, maybe you've been coming for a while, maybe you're a first-time visitor, either, either way, I hope you always get the message at the door that you are, you are welcomed, we're happy to see you. But if any one of us here doesn't know Jesus Christ yet, to use the words of Scripture, today is your day of salvation. Don't let this opportunity to make the most life and eternally changing decision of your life. Do not fail to invite Jesus Christ into your life. It's as simple as the ABCs. You may have heard me share that before. A, all you've got to do is admit that you're a sinner. For some people, that's a big, a big admission because pride is so stinking big in some of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. B, I need to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Jesus himself said it. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't, the, the idea that I think it doesn't make any difference what you believe as long as you're sincere is a lot of nonsense. If I go to England and rent a car and decide I'm going to drive on the right side of the road and I go around a curve, I can very sincerely run into a truck or a lorry, as they call it over there, and be totally dead and very sincerely dead because I didn't follow the rules of the road. And these are the rules of the road to get to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ. A, I admit that I'm a sinner. B, I need to honestly believe that he is the only way. And C, commit myself to him. And that's the receiving part. There are people who say, oh, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross to save us from our sins and never cash the check. Pretty sad. They just sort of kind of frame it and place it on the wall to say, I believe those Christian tenets, but have never done anything about it. Don't be that kind of person. God loves you too much to, to, to leave you the way you are. He wants you to be part of his forever family. So you can do that right now while I'm talking. You can do it when we close in prayer, but don't let this day pass. Don't step out these doors without saying... I want to be right with God through Jesus Christ. God's plans, his promises were sure. His plan was wonderful. And his timing was perfect. We go extra biblical to kind of appreciate that. What does he mean by in the fullness of time? Well, I'm not going to presume that I understand that in all the ways that God understands it. But there are several ways that we could appreciate why we could say, God knew this was the right time. First of all, messianic expectation by the people of Israel was high. They were looking for a deliverer. And they had good reason to. Because right now, they were under the domination of the Roman Empire, which was pretty extensive by now. There was a reality of world peace, at least in the known world, because they were under the rule of what's called Pax Romana. Some of you may remember that from your world history class. It's Latin for Roman peace. It was an enforced peace. Whether you liked it or not, you'd better get along or... But it meant that there was a lot of stability in the known world at that time. Jesus was born into a time of relative stability for his ministry and then for the subsequent spread of the gospel. And also, there was an amazing... Uh, uh, network of Roman roads. Some of you may have gone to Europe and you, uh, you've, see, you've actually walked on, on, on sections of uh, the Appian Way. It's still there. You can, or if not, you can look at pictures and you think, man, all these... Uh, that, 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 built, that road started to be built in about 300 B.C. It's still there. It's even got sidewalks. It's incredible. The Romans had an incredible network of transportation, which would facilitate the spread of the gospel along with the Roman peace. And then the Greek language, the Koine Greek, was, was a language that was going to be the lingua franca, the sort of the, the trade language of the empire. And it was a language that had great precision in being able to flesh out abstract uh, aspects of theology that Paul was so good at doing in, say, the book of Romans. So God knew what he was doing and he knew the time that was right in these respects as well as in maybe other aspects we're not even aware of. Now that's a little bit of a capsule of what happened in Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But I want us to think about an application of these three truths, God's promises, his plan and his timing, to your life and mine. In the ultimate sense of the word, I hope we got the picture that uh, God's plans for us uh, as well as his promises are great. Does God have promises that he has offered to us that are in the process of being fulfilled or perhaps are yet to be fulfilled? I'm talking about promises for our pilgrimage, not the promise of eternal life. That's the ultimate one. We've already quoted what he said he would do when we put our faith in Christ. But along the way, has God made promises that we can count on him fulfilling in our lives? Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Has he not said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not do it? God's very reliable. I think it's important, moms and dads, that when we make promises to our kids, that we keep them. Uh, there are times we say, well, if it, if it works out, we'll do this or that. That's, that's not a promise. That's a, that's a qualified statement. But if you say, we're going to Disneyland this summer, you better keep it. As, as much as, as, as uh, you have the capacity and the resources to do it. Because when we make promises, we want to teach our kids that 
promises from their parents are reliable so that when they understand the promises of God, who is the ultimate wonderful parent, they don't have any reason to doubt that when my parent makes a promise, my parent will keep it. Now, there are times, of course, when it's humanly impossible because we're not God. But don't take promises lightly. God, made, God has made promises to us. In fact, the, the, the Bible says he's not slow about his promises, as some count slowness. That's in Second Peter 2.9. But is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. I think I gave you the wrong uh, passage here. Well, my fault. He's not slow about his promises, so some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not, wi- not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's timing is evident in his promises here that he's going to hold off on fulfilling (laughs) the promise of judgment because he wants more people to come to faith in Christ. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves those who have yet to make up their minds about him. But I want you to think for a minute about some of the promises that are clearly made available to us as believers. He made a promise to Abraham to say, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And some of us would say, oh, the last thing in the world I want to do is be a great nation. i got three or four kids, and that's plenty. Or you might be like the, the Roshanes or the uh, the Hamers, and, you know, you're braver, and you've got maybe seven or eight or whatever it is, and you've got enough for a basketball team at least. You might even have enough for a football team. I don't know. But some of us would say, I don't want to be a great nation. I, I, my, 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 quiver, my quiver full is full. And, 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 and that, that's okay, because that promise was made to Abraham, not to you. But there are promises that he did make to you and to me. In fact, let me just take a moment to say, do some of you have a precious promise that you know is for believers and it's precious to you? Just raise your hand and just share it. Yeah. Okay, you didn't hear that from Anna, but she has a promise from John chapter 9 related to her son that she's confidently holding on to. Somebody else? I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just want to give you a chance. Okay, that's all right. Here's some I'm sure that you'll agree with. In fact, Pastor Chris just promoted this recently in his series on teaching. It's from Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And where's the promise? And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will stand guard or rule in your hearts. Now, that's a promise. It basically says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Easier said than done, right? Because we, all of us are good at worrying. If we got paid for worrying, we'd all be millionaires, wouldn't we? But that's a promise that says, in lieu of the human tendency to, uh, ang- to be anxious about things, even to freak out about some situations, do this instead, and this is the result that is promised to you. Now, as Chris, Pastor Chris pointed out, it isn't instant. It, it's not a prescription that will take care of everything Monday morning. For example, if you have an infection and you go ahead and get an antibiotic from your from your doctor, it may take, uh, it's a, they say, take the antibiotic for 10 days, maybe 14 days. It's something that will take care of it, but it's going to take a little bit of time. And I think in a spiritual sense, when we seek to implement this promised passage, this spiritual prescription, it's going to take a little time for the peace of God to lay hold of my heart and rule in a way that God wants it to. It isn't just a quick fix. So if you're struggling with that, be encouraged. But that is a promise for us as believers. The other one is 419. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Wow, really? Now, we're talking about needs here, not wants. When our kids were growing up, once in a while somebody, and that would have included Michael, I need an ice cream. (laughs) Hadn't changed a bit, has he? And I would say, do you need some ice cream or do you want some ice cream? So we wanted to teach them the difference between needs and wants. Now, I'm not a prosperity gospel pastor or retired pastor. So that if you want a new F-350 in a certain color with all the trimmings, leather and etc., that's a want. That's not a need. We say, I need it for my business. You may need a truck for your business, but you probably don't need a brand new F-350 for your business. You might be able to, within your means, need to settle for a used one. You see what I'm saying? God says he'll take care of our needs, not our wants. Now, he might bless you with that. You can praise the Lord for him. I remember one pastor who uh, was, a, he, he, he was a pastor in a church for over 50 years. And uh, he had somebody in his uh, 
and his uh, congregation who would see to it that every two or three years uh, they'd have his car traded in and then they'd give him a brand new one. And some of his pastoral colleagues from other churches said, Roy, how come you get all the good stuff? He says, well, when you live by faith, you just got to take what the Lord gives you. <laughs> but the promise is for our needs. And then Paul, in that context, said, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. Kind of go together, don't they? So we want to make sure that we understand the promises correctly. But that's a promise for us. And Jesus reaffirmed that years earlier when he said, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things will be added unto you. What were the things that he was referring to? The needs that were previously elicited in that passage about food, clothing, shelter, that sort of thing. God's going to take care of his kids. If we make sure that we take care of his business, he'll take care of ours. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has been one of my favorites. I use it in counseling for other people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. And what's the promise? He will direct your paths. That's a promise. Now, we know that God's plans for us are also great. I mean, in the the eternal picture, as we've already talked about, and I want to summarize it this way, the lost, he was ready to redeem. And in your life and mine, he did, didn't he? If you put your faith in Christ, you already know that. Then, as the redeemed, he's ready to refine us. And he is. And sometimes it's a little painful, isn't it? And then when we are refined, he's ready to reward us. And you can be sure he will. Now, that reward's not going to be fully fleshed out until we get to heaven. So this is the big picture kind of thing where we can say God's plans for us are good, are great. But along the way, I believe we can also say he gives us sneak previews of what he will do ultimately in eternity. Sometimes just reminders that he's on the job but he wants to bless us along the way that, that with things that may in themselves not be eternal, but they have eternal ramifications in the way they're going to be used in our lives. Jeremiah 29.11 may be a favorite verse of yours as, as, as it is of mine. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give to you a future and a hope. Now, granted, that was given in the context of, of a prophet to Israel. That's God's people in the Old Testament. But a good way to handle Scripture accurately is to compare Scripture with Scripture and see if a certain claim is reaffirmed in other places in a broader context. And I think we have that in Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God, called according to his purpose. You've heard this passage many times. When we're going through bad times, we don't want anybody else to quote it to us, do we? But sometimes we need to remind ourselves of it. Let me share a couple of illustrations from life. Uh, back in the uh, 1950s, I'm going back, and since I'm old enough, I can give you some, you know, ancient history illustrations. Uh, a widow, a, a young, uh, a young couple with two, uh, two young children, uh, had envisioned and implemented in its uh, nascent form uh, a retreat ministry uh, here in the Northwest. Well. On one particular day, the husband drove into Portland to get some supplies to bring back to uh, take care of the, the food service in their, in their uh, uh, developing uh, retreat ministry. And on his way back on high, Highway 26, he was killed in an auto accident. This left this young widow with two daughters and what to do about the future. I mean, they, they didn't have a corporate pension plan, etc., like that. <clears throat> and uh, one of the Bible teachers that had now become friends of this couple, he told this widow, he said, you need to turn this ministry over to a man. This is not a job for a woman, certainly not for a woman in your situation. Years later at her, uh, at her uh, memorial service, Dr. J. Vernon McGree said, she changed all my theology about women and leadership. <laughs> well, this widow decided this vision was given to us as a couple, and I believe God wants me to continue it. So even in her human weakness... She was resolved to do all that she could to keep this ministry alive and to do what she could to move it forward. And over the years, Cannon Beach Christian Conference Center grew to be what it is today. 
I talked with one of the architects of the earlier buildings one time years ago. He said, you know, a lot of us men in positions of influence like contractors, owners of lumber yards, and himself, he said, we did for that lady what we would not have done for her six-foot-five six husband. God's strength was perfected in her human weakness. And Cannon Beach Conference Center is quite the sought-after place today. It uh, features uh, renowned Christian Bible teachers and speakers from all over the country and has been for the last 50 years celebrating this year the home of Ecola, Ecola Bible College. And we've got several of those students here today. <laughs> Tied in with that story of how God's plan can unfold for us on our way to heaven is a little bit of, if you'll allow me to share my story. I don't think I've shared this part of it before. Uh, I, uh, I went to, to a, a, a really good Christian liberal arts college in Southern California my first year out of high school. I had a full, full ride tuition scholarship, but I, for, for various reasons, I wasn't really comfortable with where I was there. Uh, one of my friends uh, from, from the last years of my high school had a dad who was on the board of another Christian liberal arts school here in the Northwest, and he said, I'm going to fly up for the annual board meeting. You want to fly up with me? This was, in the, this was at the end of the school year, and I thought, cool, a free airplane ride. Now, this is back in the in the uh, early 60s, you know, again, ancient history for some of you. But I thought, I'm, I'm getting an invitation to go up and check out this other campus. It was at a good time in my life to do that. And when I went there, somehow he had arranged, or somebody up on, the, on, the, on the college staff had arranged for two outstanding uh, uh, senior uh, uh, or upperclassmen to be my personal tour guides as I walked across the campus of George Fox College. I'm from Southern California. I didn't. I never saw foliage like this on a on a college campus. It was beautiful. And uh, uh, Richard Foster is an author that some of you might recognize. He was one of those upperclassmen. He and another one who later became uh, uh, an assistant for uh, Senator Mark Hatfield, who was a prominent Oregon senator, uh, was there. And so I got the royal treatment, and I was captivated, and I transferred. But I didn't stay long. I just stayed for that one year. Then I decided I wanted to go home. And, and prove that I could earn my own way getting a job and paying some rent to my parents in my own home because I was now young enough to say I wanted to prove my, my independent and responsible manhood. And I thought, well, I'll just go ahead and take classes and I'll have a job and everything will be fine. Well, I found out that by enrolling at Fullerton Community College, well, they call it junior college down there, or Cal State Fullerton, which was the, was, which was the uh, college that I found out that uh, Kevin Costner went to a few years later, we, we weren't sharing the same classes. Uh, it, it just didn't work out. I, I, I was just, I just felt like a fish out of water. So I dropped out of college. But I still had, I had my full-time job. It was at a, it was at a plant that uh, manufactured uh, uh, computer, computer boards for the Minuteman missiles. And so I got to be part of the manufacturing process. I was making, I think I shared this part. I was making big bucks in the early 60s. $2.54 an hour. Boy, I was rolling in cash. And I went out and bought myself a brand new Mustang for $3,000. <laughs> this is what old people tell you. Well, man, I was growing up, you could buy a loaf of bread for 10 cents, you know. But then, of course, the wages were a lot less, too. I dropped out. And real smart kid, you know, I'm thinking, well, I dropped out. And this is the time when the Vietnam War is building, starting to build up. Uh, John Kennedy has just been assassinated. LBJ has taken over, and he's now escalating the war in Vietnam. And I'm not connecting dots very well. But now, because this is the time when there was a draft, this was not a volunteer army, my number came up, and I got my draft notice that you're going into Uncle Sam's army. Boy, did I get a reality check. That, whoa, I didn't plan on this. College dropout, perfectly eligible, I'm healthy. And I remember going downtown Los Angeles and getting my induction physical. And at that time, this may shock some of you, part of that I can still remember is a bunch of us guys wearing not very many clothes, standing in line as the doctor went down the line to make sure we didn't have hernias. We, I felt like we were cattle in, in, a, in, a, in a stockyard being herded through for our health check, you know. I mean, so you can imagine how feeling embarrassed and humiliated. Nobody was abusive, but it was just like you're sort of dehumanized in a sense. And I remember going into one room where we were waiting for the next level of the checkup, and one guy said, I don't want to kill anybody. You know, he's just kind of thinking, please, Mr. Custer, I don't want to die. So the reality was really beginning to hit me big time. Well, 
through some circumstances that were brought into my life, I went to talk with a, a, a pastor who was affiliated with the denomination of George Fox, and I told him my story. And he had a son that was a classmate of mine. He said, if you were my son, I would tell you to get back into college right now. And so I think he pulled some strings for me to be fast-tracked back at the George Fox. They already had my records. They already had my transcripts, etc. And by that spring, I was back in college. I had reinstated my student deferment. I didn't know if I was going to go to Vietnam, but there was a pretty good bet that I was. When I got back a couple of years later, one of our boys, I don't know how he got selected, but he was a great little guy, went to Vietnam, and about two weeks before he was released to come home, he was killed in action. So God spared me from that. I know some of you have stories that have pain related to that, and I don't mean to be dismissive of it. I'm just telling you my story. Got back into college. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, God was working in the life of somebody else that I was yet to meet. She was a transfer student from a college back in the Midwest that summer. <clears throat> uh, this was the summer after I got back to school. She met some students from George Fox College who were serving as counselors at Cannon Beach Conference Center for a youth group. And they talked to her about how much they enjoyed that school. I'm not here to plug George Fox. Uh, I'm just telling you that's where my story is. Uh, and they, they encouraged her since they found out a little bit about her story and that she was thinking of staying closer to home, that she ought to come to George Fox. So the, the, the spring of the following year, a young lady came to the campus who I can still remember as just full of life, big smile, perky. Uh, now, this is going to date us. Margie will probably groan because I really didn't get her permission to do this. I can still remember her in that little booth at the center of our co-ed dorm. Co-ed dorm in those days was one wing for the women, one wing for the guys. But we had a common lobby, and then there was a like a booth here where they did the, the, the calls came into the switchboard. You know, I mean, this is really ancient, isn't it? And the mail came there. So I came down there one day, and here the, one of the first things she said to me, she said, do you believe in the Easter Bunny? And I was a serious math major, and I thought, I am not ready for this. But she was so captivating in that way, so full of fun, and in other ways, and also found out she was serious about her faith. And so a little, a, a, a young co-ed transfer student came to that school a year after I did, and I started dating, getting to know each other. And about two years later, at Crown Point in the Columbia River Gorge, I asked her to marry me. And thank God she said yes. <laughs> and I would, and I would want to say, <laughs> And I would want to say, if she were here, Margie, thank you for saying yes. And she probably can hear me on the PA system. She's, she's in the nursery. Thank you for being my wonderful wife, mother of our children, my love of my life, my best friend, and confidant for over 50 years now. But, uh, you know, wives, guys, as you know, have a way of keeping us humble. She did tell me, as much as she has been by my side and with me and and backing me up, she said, if you go to heaven first, I'm getting a dog. <laughs> now, she didn't say she was going to replace me with a dog. But guys, how would you hear that? So I think if it's going to happen, I need to accept it and say, get yourself a Labrador. Because in my opinion, they're the best breed out there. Now, when I tell you this, I, and, and the story doesn't end there. We, we got to know each other. My major was math. Uh, I went out and worked at another college in California with, uh, you know, my math background. But it was during that time that my wife and I realized we're believers that need to be investing our lives in ministry some way, somehow. So we got involved in a junior high ministry. I think I did share this part in a previous uh, summer, but you weren't always, you weren't all here at that time. And I began to realize that as, as honorable as a, uh, a profession in teaching mathematics was, and I understand there's a need for that today, my heart, the way God wired me, was going to be in ministry to the, uh, to the spiritual needs of people around me. And, and I, I began to realize that my path that the Lord wants me to be in is in ministry. So I've sometimes said, as a, as a pastor who has that traditional orientation of a three-point outline, which we're doing right now, I, I, I met a girl named Math. Uh, God led me into... Uh, uh, let's see how. It, oh yeah, I had a major in math, and I met a girl named Margie, and God led me into ministry. So it was a three-point outline that was even alliterated, and so God did lead us into ministry. We served in church ministry for many years. Along the way, when we were in a church in a growing suburb of uh, Portland, and things were really beginning to pop, 
I was invited by the existing director of Ecola Bible College to consider replacing him. He felt like he was being led into some other ministry. So here's God's unfolding plan, a little bit of timing. And I struggled with that because I thought we are in a, in a ballooning church ministry. Things are really going well. And yet this offer to be the director of Ecola Bible College and just be immersed in the lives of college-age students in a Bible uh, uh, education atmosphere, that has a big draw too. And I was really tugged both ways. It was, uh, I think in psychology they call it double attraction. Uh, somebody jokingly said, yeah, it's kind of like uh, you, uh, double attraction is like you've seen your mother-in-law drive off a cliff in your brand-new sports car. You know, that, that's a cynical view. This wasn't like that. That wasn't, that certainly didn't represent my mother-in-law. But I remember one day walking with Gordon, the director at that time, on the campus of the conference center. And I said, you know, Gordon, pray with us that we'll be able to understand what God really wants us to do about this. He was very direct. He said, John, I will pray that you will come to realize what is obviously the Lord's will to everybody else. <laughs> so we decided to accept the invitation. And I became the director of the Cola Bible College for several years. And what a rich experience it was for our family as well as for Margie and me. We got to uh, enjoy developing friendships with some outstanding nationally known Bible teachers and leaders. As well as getting to know Ecola students and, uh, and some of them for various reasons will never be forgotten. <laughs> and I'm enjoying getting to meet some of them as they come to church and as I continue to teach, as I have for the past 50 years at Ecola Bible College, right now in the second school of ministry. So God really unfolded his plan. And I have ultimately, as all of us do, to thank God for unfolding his plan in our lives. But I have Uncle Sam to thank for getting me my draft notice. Because he got me off my duff and into action in the way that I should be going. Sometimes he does that in our lives, doesn't he? Now, I'm sharing that from somebody who's in his 70s. So I have an opportunity to see a bigger picture of how God put things together in my life. Some of you have been able to do that because you're quicker than I am and you've already connected the dots of how God's plan is unfolding in your lives. But some of us are really working on that, aren't we? We think, Lord, how in the world is this supposed to make any sense? Now, in a not very cosmic sense, uh, I'll risk speaking for Stephen Smiley and myself, they almost got back from their vacation a few weeks ago, and they got greeted by an elk who did a serious face job on their pickup. Is that still in the works? Yeah. And I found out on my way to church about three or four Sundays ago that we weren't going to make it with our 2014 van because the transmission was going out. And it's still waiting in line for it to be replaced. Now, those are not of cosmic significance. I don't know, Stephen, how God's going to work that into his plan. But Jesus did say, in the world you'll have tribulation. So we realize that it doesn't mean when we trust God for his plan, our lives are un unfolding, uh, you know, bed of roses. We know better than that. And when I give you this summary description of mine, it was a roller coaster ride. It was not smooth sailing. Margie did something beautiful for our 50th anniversary. She found a card that, and I think I did share this, that has a, a cutout of a traditional roller coaster with all the struts and framing for the... And we're, we're like two people in our carriage at the top and our hair is blowing back and we're going, ah! We're at the top and we're going down in a plummeting ride. And she has on all of those struts different memories along the way, happy memories and hard memories. But the ride has been worth it. And I just want to share that to say when I give you the summary of how it looks so tidy, our story has not been tidy. In fact, if it's any encouragement to some of you, we had a stormy courtship. Oh, my goodness. It was really something. But we hammered out a lot of stuff before we said, I do. And that has stood us in good stead. So I say that to encourage you to think, oh, John and Margie had a Cinderella story. No, it wasn't, it wasn't some... Well, Cinderella didn't have a pretty happy story either. It came out right in the end. But I want to say this to qualify that, even though I can tell you how God put things together in some wonderful ways in our lives and in other ways along the way, it hasn't been without its trials and temptations. And I know that that's something that all of us deal with one way or the other. But God is sovereign, and he knows how to even override times when we just bungle it. He's big enough to overcome that and, and uh, restore the years that the locust has eaten to give us beauty for ashes. So if you feel like, you know, John, I've, I've messed up along the way. Well, <laughs> so have I. We all have. 
But God is bigger than that. And when we turn to him and say, Lord, uh, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. I don't want to get in the way of the plan that you've always had for me. He's going he's to fix it. There may be some consequences I have to live with because of things that uh, in the past are just things you do live with. But God gets us back on the path, and he does what I just said. He restores the years that the locust eaten, has eaten. He gives us beauty for ashes. Uh, if I, I don't think they're here this morning, but a Jody Conser remembers her previous husband dying in her arms. And she thought, I will never, ever be able to have a love like I had with this husband of mine. And then along came Doug, and she would be the first one to nod her head and say, I was wrong. <laughs> God did give me beauty for ashes. And he will do that in your life and, and as well as in mine in the days ahead if we just yield ourselves to him and let him do the paintbrush strokes and not try to help him paint it. Remember what Abraham did when he and Sarah tried to help God give them a, a son? Well, he got the son done, but they thought they'd help out, and they got Ishmael first and uh, had to deal with the consequences of helping God unfold his plan. Isaac came along, and he became the, uh, the, the promise of blessing. Now, God had plans for Ishmael, but his real plan was with Isaac, and he didn't need Abraham's help to unfold his plan. So we sometimes get in there to help God, and he has to work around that, but he will do it because he's sovereign enough and big enough and loves you enough to do that. He's faithful enough to keep his promises. He's big enough to unfold his plan. And he's wise enough to do it in his time. And that's the last thing we want to look at. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He will bring forth his fruit when? In his season. Let us not lose heart, according to Galatians 6, 9. And, and, and that is, don't lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we don't grow weary. What's the key word there? In due time. And it's that reality of having to wait on the Lord to unfold his plan in our lives. In fact, the plan sometimes will take turns we don't expect. I remember when I, had a, uh, when I was in my earlier years of the pastorate and we had a staff, our assistant pastor was now in his retirement years. When he and his wife were fresh out of Bible school, they felt the Lord calling them to Africa as missionaries. They were convinced that's where God wanted them to be. But they were under the leadership of a mission board of their denomination, which is fine. That's the way things were traditionally done then and still are in many cases. The mission board said, we need you to be in India, not Africa. And they thought, no, no, God wants us in Africa. That's where our heart is. We need you in India. So they chose to submit to the leadership and the wisdom of their board. They went to India, had a wonderful ministry there. When they came back after the retirement years and they were on our staff, they took a leave of absence and went back for a, a visiting time with the people that had grown up under their ministry, visiting the churches that had been established. And I don't know what the, the Hindi expression is for mama and papa in the faith, but that's how they were welcomed back in such a way that this couple had such an enduring impact through generations in their part of India. And it was, uh, it was a change of plans for them. But as we have to be reminded of in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. If the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than yours. We've got to be flexible in walking by faith and not by sight. And if we have the attitude, whatever the situation is, whether we're missionaries or lay people or whatever, Lord, I, want you, I acknowledge you in all my ways and I will trust you to direct my paths even if that means in directions I don't think it's going to go right now. In fact, somebody in a moment of trying to be humorous says, you want to make God laugh? Show him your plans. <laughs> but his timing is good along that way. Uh, I think I shared with you, uh, uh, well, I'm going to share this real quickly because I know we're running out of time. Uh, when we were in, a, uh, in a, uh, uh, a rural church ministry on the Oregon coast, one day we just happened to be driving down the beach loop. And I think I have probably shared this, so bear with me if it's a rerun, but it fits here. And all of a sudden, we saw coming down both sides of this rural road, guys in white shirts. Some of them were wearing ties. They were well-groomed. They looked like a bunch of Mormon missionaries, but they weren't. They were guys that were high school grads who were in this Millard military prep school that was down there by Bradley Lake, at the end of this beach loop, and we found out that they were there from professional Air Force families from all over the country, and they were there to 
jack up their SAT scores by going through three years of math textbooks twice in five months, as well as English and other things. This was a very intensive program. These guys were motivated. They had a sense of purpose. They wanted to go on and be professional military guys like their parents were. And in that time, uh, we didn't know it existed until we just happened to drive down this Sunday afternoon on that road and met these guys. One thing led to another. They started coming to church, which caused the girls in our youth group to look around and say, I don't remember seeing them at my high school here in Bandon. And, it, you know, it just started to be a more interesting time. And several of them came to Christ. One of them wound up, several of them wound up making it to the Air Force Academy because that was their ambition. And I think I shared with you more recently, Margie checked up on one of the fellows who came to Christ under my ministry. And he wound up not only going to the academy, but graduating, eventually becoming a, a base commander general. And he's now retired. He's now old enough to do that. So God worked through his timing by us just happening to drive down that road at the right time. God will bring those chance encounters situations into your life and mine because his timing is going to unfold for you and I at times. In fact, some of you may already bear testimony to that. You may have had a hard growing up period and then God brought this wonderful Christian man or woman into your life in your adulthood that has brought you into a whole new season of wholeness and healing where you serve the Lord together. And you could say perhaps with the psalmist, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places because God brought in his timing his plan together in your life. Plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But as I'm saying this, I know that this is so much easier to say than to experience because for some of us here, I'm sure you'd say, well, I don't, I don't disagree that God has a plan for me, but this book is in the early chapters, and I really don't see how God's going to bring it together. I'm not saying he won't, but I just have no clue to see how the dots are going to be connected. That's why the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. You may be in a situation in your, your home life or with growing kids that are out to lunch. Maybe they're not even growing yet, and you feel like, God's got to do some really big work in this situation. Our hearts, our homes. Or in your business, you may be in a time of real crisis and you don't know how through all this crazy COVIDness it's going to come together. I don't know. And maybe health challenges. You think, I didn't plan on this being in the script. But there are different ways that we're going to, we, are, we are experiencing perhaps trials and tribulations. And you think, I don't know how God's going to straighten out this mess. Remember, at the very beginning, he took... A universe that at the beginning was in a state of chaos, and he brought beauty and order out of it. it was, the world was out form and void. Darkness moved across the face of the earth, and then God unfolded this beautiful plan. And even in a fallen world, I'm amazed at the evidence of his design and harmony that's there, even when it's in a less than perfect state. If God can do that with the universe? You think your, 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 your complications in your life are too big for him to be able to straighten out? Don't you dare believe that. Don't underestimate the God who is faithful to his promises, big enough to uh, unfold his plan and good enough to unfold it, and wise enough to know just when and how to bring it all together. Now, as I say, I realize that's much easier to say than to do when we're living it out. But for those of us who are believers, and I'm pretty much talking to a group of believers, these truths from Christ's First coming, Galatians 4, are to encourage us as we journey with him and await his second coming. And sometimes it really requires some persevering patience. That's why we have Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which is the passage we're going to close with. Seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses from biblical history, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. Running with perseverance. Because that's, this is no 100-yard dash, is it? We're in a marathon. Now, for some of us, it may be a shorter one. It may be only uh, 1,000 meters. For some of us, like myself, it may be a 3,000-meter race because God needed more time to get me where I need to be. But he'll do the work that he wants to do in us if we're just persevering with patience.
I want to close with some, uh, in fact, uh, when we're dealing with the reality of not understanding it, uh, there's a song that I think is, it's not real popular right now, but the words are so right on. It says, when we don't understand, when we don't know his plan, when we can't trace his hand, what do we need to do? Trust his heart. That's what it comes down to, isn't it? Can we trust the Lord with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge him because he will direct our paths. And then as we're waiting on the Lord, I think this, uh, these lyrics from another song that maybe dates me a little bit called In His Time from the 70s, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you do just what you say in your time. In your time, in your time, you make all things beautiful in your time. Lord, my life to you I bring. May each song I have to sing be to you a lovely thing in your time. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises to us as you were in Galatians 4. That your plan for us is also good as it was for our eternal redemption in Galatians 4. And we thank you, Lord, that your timing for us is right on just like it was in bringing Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners like us. And so, Lord, this is the time when we have the opportunity to do business with you in the way that you're probably already speaking to each of our hearts. I don't know what that is. It's none of my business. But I encourage each one of you to be open to how God is speaking to you right now in the way you need to do business with him. And as we said at the beginning of our teaching time, if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Savior, for heaven's sake as well as your own, Get that taken care of right now. You can pray in your heart silently as I pray aloud. Oh God, I admit that I'm a sinner. You know that very well. I am sorry for my sin. And I do believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me too. But I don't want to just leave it as something I acknowledge in my head. I want to hear him now in the silence of my heart. Lord, say, Lord Jesus, come into my life as my Savior and the Lord of my life to unfold your plan. Thank you that you heard my prayer because the Bible says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast aside. But Lord, for the majority, if not all of us who are here, we've already made that decision and we can rejoice that you redeemed us, you're refining us, and you're going to be ultimately rewarding us. But along the way, there are realities that we need to be assured of in terms of how those promises for this journey are going to unfold or continue to unfold and that the plan that you desire for us on our journey is going to come to pass and it will be done in your way and in your time. So, Lord, whatever you want me to do, make it clear as to what that should be. And however, I just need to simply wait on you, Lord, to do what only you can do. Let me rest in the Lord and wait patiently for you and let you strengthen my heart. And Father, where some of us have been maybe too busy getting our own fingers into the pie, maybe even just through disobedience, not just trying to be helpful by human manipulation, but just uh, just getting our fingers dirty with sin. And Lord, we just need to say, this is a time I ask you, Lord, to forgive me. I've been a, I've been a prodigal in some ways that maybe aren't noticeable to the people in this audience. But you know, Lord, I've been disobedient to you in areas that you and I are keenly aware of. If you need to do business with God that way, then take these closing moments to do that. 
And after we close in prayer and during the closing song, if you need to just have a time of prayer and some consultation with uh, the, uh, the leaders in our church, and uh, I'll be available to do that as well alongside them. We'll be here along the, the walls around the perimeter of the auditorium. You are readily invited to come up for just a moment of private consultation and prayer to help you facilitate what God is calling you to do this morning. Oh, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, as well as our great Savior, we gather this together and pray that your Holy Spirit will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in each of our hearts today, that we can go forth encouraged, Lord, built up in our walk with Jesus, and all that much more prepared in our witness for him who is sufficient for all seasons in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.